right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, Josh. Hello, everyone. Marcelo. Hello, everyone. And we have a special guest and a fourth person for the first time in the new year. Please welcome Ken Drew. How's it going, Ken? Living the dream. <laughs> so our introduction for Ken. Ken Drew is a military veteran and a current student at USF. He's in Florida. Much warmer than it is right now for me. It was about negative 19 today. And uh, he's also the host of Taboo Topic. Yeah, actually, I was on his show twice, and I'm finally repaying the favor. So Ken uh, <laughs> is another political commentary show. You should check him out. Before we get into our announcements, today we're going to cover the Democratic bills aimed at reforming voter laws. Spoiler alert, they did die on the Senate floor but they were the Freedom to Vote and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. We're going to outline what those were and then discuss some of the major ideas underpinning them. And before that, you should go follow us on Instagram, which is at Between the Liars, underscore between each of the words. We have a Facebook page. Our Twitter is at Between Liars. Please follow that one. Make some accounts. Follow it because we're at like, uh, we have one new person. So it's like up to 19 now. Uh, we also have our YouTube channel and a TikTok. So I'm going to turn this over to our special guest now to tell us a little bit about his podcast like the major theme and maybe highlight what the upcoming episode is and what one of your more recent ones was. Uh, yeah, so basically Taboo Topic, it's kind of the name it by itself where I cover taboo topics and subjects or really opinions that people may have but are too afraid to speak out loud. For obvious reasons, we live in a cancel culture, at least from my perspective anyway, where if you say anything that remotely goes against the ruling class, to say the least, and their points of view, then you're deemed unworthy to have an opinion or even worthy to even look into the story as well. It's kind of in the logo itself where it says uh, underneath the taboo topic, honesty equals understanding. And uh, in order for us to achieve real peace within our own society, we don't have to necessarily get along, but in order for us to achieve real peace in society, we have to at least be able to be honest with each other. And with that honesty comes a genuine, true understanding, at least. We're not going to agree with each other, never, but at least we have a genuine understanding. We can get along with each other. We don't have to like each other, but we can get along. So that's really the premise. Uh, the last episode I posted was last Wednesday, actually. Uh, we talked about homeschooling and the rise of homeschool and how um, many parents, as a matter of fact, right, 11% now of parents who have completely taken their kids out of public schools and are 100% homeschooling their children. And we look into the rise and why that's been the case. I even have a friend of mine who was homeschooled himself and talked about the advantages and disadvantages of homeschool and uh, why it's important to do your own research. And in this upcoming week, I'm going to actually do a week in review. So I try to post two episodes a week, uh, one on Wednesday where I do a hot seat edition, I call it now, where I pick one particular topic or idea or opinion. And I kind of just scrutinize and do my own research and, and kind of figure out why this opinion is popular or unpopular for that matter. And then a week in review editions, I may have a guest with me like Ryan has come on my show once to do a week in review edition where we just kind of go over like stories we found interesting for the week. So if it's just me, no, I just do like four or five stories, but if I have a guest, we can go up to eight stories and we give a general synopsis and then give our initial reaction afterwards. And on that show, I like to really encourage my uh, audience and my guests, Brian can attest to this, to just go ahead and be blunt with your thoughts because I'd rather uh, know where you actually stand instead of just trying to be polite. By all means, check it out. You can follow me on Instagram as well. I have my own Instagram. I just type in Kenjin underscore express. Spell the word engine. Put the letter K in front of the word engine. Then you get Kenjin, one word, 296. That's pretty much it for me. Ken is actually the reason we got an Instagram. So Josh, why don't you <laughs> tell us a little bit about where people can find us live or pre-recorded. Just depends on the week. <laughs> depends on the week. Depends on, on the session. But we normally try to get episodes out once a week around noon central. As always, when we are live, we do love for you to come by and catch us. Love seeing you there, interacting and answering any questions or comments you may have. It can be enriching both for the show because a lot of the thoughts and concerns we may have or kind of takes we may come to aren't really going to always match up with the public because a lot of us, you know, are isolated in very intensely politically focused areas. And so having that interaction with the public and, you know, helping us ground ourselves outside of our ivory towers of academia, you know, is always really great. So whenever we, we can do that, um, we post our videos up on our YouTube 
a channel as well as our Facebook channel. So you can find, you know, when we go live and all of our past episodes there, you can binge watch them all if you can tolerate the sound of my voice for that long. You can also, we still have our merch up on Redbubble and so they can put it on all types of different things that are just nifty. It's the only way to describe it. A Redbubble just does a ton of different things. You basically give them an image and they'll uh, slap it and put it on whatever you want them to. As always, and as every show, uh, we have our new music, uh, which is fantastic. It's courtesy of Andrew Hensley. Thank you so much, Andrew, at Secret Spike Studio 865 Audio. And his new single is Missy, and it's available now on all major streaming platforms. Please, please check it out. The music is just chef's kiss. So today, we're going to start with the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Here is what the main idea behind that was. Number one, it wants to reverse the 2013 Supreme Court ruling on the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Specifically, it wants selective preclearance from uh, the federal government, the Department of Justice, which would be required for states to update their voting laws. So this would include things like if they want to relocate their polling places, if they want to impose stricter voter ID laws, it would have to be cleared by the federal government. And Marcelo, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what is in the Freedom to Vote Act? Right before I get into that, I'm just, just to make sure, we're talking about bills that just died, right? So yes. we're sort of like doing like a little autopsy on these bills that actually never made it through. Yes. So just by the way, just for context, I'm just repeating what you said. And this is important because we're obviously not talking about bills that might pass. These are bills that will not pass, but might come up again in the future, hopefully, at, at least in my opinion. I, don't, I know. At least the ideas not. should. I mean. Right, right. Some, like some of this will come back, just not necessarily in this specific form. So the other one of the bills that we're talking about is the Freedom to Vote Act, which has many, many different things. So we highlighted a few for y'all. The first one is that it makes Election Day a national holiday. It allows states to have early voting at least two weeks prior to Election Day, including nights and weekends. It allows voting by mail with no excuses needed. It requires that states make voting more accessible for people with disabilities. It requires that states that require IDs for voting would have to broaden the types of identification acceptable, so more than just maybe driver's license or whatever they have right now as acceptable IDs. It requires same-day voting registration and online registration, and also makes it easier to register at places like departments of uh, motor vehicles. So at, at DMVs, it would be easier to be registered as a voter in case, like me, you don't drive. I guess not in my case because I don't vote, but you get the point. Uh, and finally, it strengthens the Federal Election Commission's ability to investigate charges of campaign abuses and require that states replace outdated voting machines with ones that, among other things, provide voters with paper records of their ballots. So it's a lot of things. I feel like if you would have to call it like an omnibus like voting bill, this could be it because it has a lot of things that do a lot of different things. So I think tackling each one at a time or separately would probably be best. I'm in favor of most of these things, if not all of these things. But again, I'm sure that that not opinion is not widely shared. There's a reason why it failed. So for our discussion, let's start with an easy one. Uh, let's talk about making Election Day a national holiday. I know I am going to be in favor of that. And I'm assuming Marcelo and Josh would also be kick it to Ken. But I actually I took the inspiration from Peru for a proposal I had to do for a persuasion class talking about the importance of making it a federal holiday, letting people have the time off. I'm curious, kick it to the group. What do you guys think about, you know, the, the one item of making it a national holiday? I will put an important caveat here is that even though you are making this a national holiday, there are some people out there that don't have holidays simply because of the way, you know, society works. People who work in either like very demanding industries, who work in like uh, like um, um, EMS or who work in restaurants, who work in malls, like these places like where there's a holiday, you know, in 4th of July, you are out with your family, but somebody has to sell you the hot dogs, right? So there's people out there working anyways still. So not to say I'm not in favor, I am in favor, but just, you know, it's a caveat that it might be a holiday, but not necessarily for everyone. Otherwise, it'd be a great day for criminals. You know, all the police are at the voting polls. <laughs> <laughs> like so there has to be kind of a staggered thing but no that that's a good caveat i'll agree with a little bit with marcelo here i like the idea but it concerns me that i'm not sure it would do enough to realistically be worth having and so people would see okay we now have this and so it would dissuade public pressure and public opinion from pushing for more changes because while this will help not only are there people who like emergency services and other kind of critical infrastructure that always needs to be working there's a lot of jobs where you don't get off for the holiday regard you know even they are just fairly mundane jobs aren't going to
coming to a close. Like Walmart is not does not shut down on 4th of July. So it would help a lot of people, but it would mostly help government employees more so than it would most private sector employees. Because while a lot of private sector companies do close for federal holidays, that is an individual company decision. So it would help some people, but um, in ter- as we might say in, in investigating the worthwhileness of a piece of legislation, I'm not sure its significance by itself uh, would realistically produce a meaningful change for a lot of Americans who struggle to make it to the polls in the first place in the status quo. I think that it does in a way make it more accessible just flat out because if, you know, just by the pure numbers, if it's a federal holiday, then, you know, say, for example, universities, they're going to have students who will be off. Students could skip class theoretically if they wanted to. But I feel like if your target audience is also college students, that helps. If your target audience is going to be people who are in positions where they wouldn't necessarily have to be on call, but they could take off for the federal holidays, then I mean, I think it just happens to broaden it and make it more accessible. I also think that it does wind up sending the message that, you know, voting is important if it's, you know, if you're legally allowed to do so. Sorry, Marcelo. <laughs> so, it's okay. I mean, again, we'll, we might get into that later, but yes. it's just like, if it helps people, it's also like maybe a little too symbolic for my taste. Yeah. It's, it's good. It's good. But it's just, I think we can agree that it's just okay. Like it's pretty positive. I want to kind of give context and perception to this question because I know Marcelo just mentioned that you know, it would help people who aren't able to get the day off, like the policemen, basically first responders. It would increase the voter turnout on election day. And Josh, you know, makes the claim that it would help federal employees. I'm going to completely disagree and say it is completely unnecessary when you have early voting. Now, how many states in the United States we have today that do not have early voting? We have a total of six, but Delaware sometime this year is going to enact early voting. So they're about to be put off that list. So it's going to be five. We have Connecticut, Delaware, Kentucky, Missouri, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. Those are the only states that do not allow early voting. Every other state in the United States, you have the option to early vote. With that said, if it's that important to you to go out and vote and you live in a state that does not have early voting, then the pressure should be put on the state governments to start allowing early voting. In the Constitution, it's even the state's right to come up with election law. It has to go through the state. It doesn't have to be a national holiday. It doesn't have to go through the federal government. The pressure should be put on the states to give people like the police, the first responders, and federal employees more time to vote in case they can't actually go in and vote on election day. Which brings to my last and brief point, if it's that important for you to vote, you will make the time, especially if you live in a state that has early voting. Make it a priority. If you really are that concerned and you want your voice heard, just go out and set a time up during your week that allows early voting and just go ahead and vote. Go ahead, do it. I'd rather have someone vote that actually cares about who and what they're voting for. I don't want just any random person just voting just for the sake of voting, which really that seems to be the main argument on the left. They just want people to just go ahead and vote just for the sake of voting. And the right does it too sometimes. But I personally want people that actually know the issues and care about the issues to vote. Those are the people I want on the ballot box. I do not just want any random person that's just going with the crowd and just voting for the sake of voting. The federalization is the problem to me here because the states were designed to run their own elections. Over the course of history, we have seen where that becomes problematic. It did require federal intervention. But by and large, unless there is a good reason for the election standards to be federalized, I believe that that should be left up to the purview of the states. So my question then would be like, why should the federal government, especially like when it's the Department of Justice be able to restrict state election laws, oversee that, and standardize it. What is the reasoning for that, and what would be the benefits of that? When the Supreme Court ruled in 2013 and struck down a section of the Voting Rights Act, Section 4B, what that Section 4B did was target geographic regions in the United States with specific legislation that only certain states and certain counties were subject to the purview of this law. The Supreme Court ruled that this, in a sense, violated the Equal Protections Clause of the citizens and of those states in comparison to the other states. And so, you know, it wasn't fair. Like, yes, those states were picked because when the Voting Rights Act was first written in 1965, they were looking at a lot of former Confederate states and they were looking at a lot of places of where intense voter infringements were happening. Now, it's worth noting that not all former Confederate states were covered by this. Take Tennessee, for example, was not included in the preclearance of the Voting Rights Act of 65. So in the way that the 
John Lewis bill works differently to restore um, and amend the Voting Rights Act to bring it in compliance with what the Supreme Court said in the Shelby v. Holder case in 2013 is that it looks and it waits for states to commit infringements on people's rights. And from that point, it then allows the federal government to say, okay, if you know these types of incidences are happening in states, that will basically then say, okay, then now the federal government has the oversight to purview these laws. Well, the first problem I see with the federalization of voting is that if an issue arose at a local level, my question is how on earth is the federal government going to be able to figure out how to fix the problem? The people who know best how to fix a problem within their own local area is the people within the area. This kind of gets into the whole local politics and why there's a new movement to put more emphasis on local politics than federal politics. We put way too much focus at the national level of election and politics, but we never look within the state or even our own counties within the state. In other words, if there was a problem that happened in Texas, more specifically Houston, who do you think is going to know how to fix that problem more? The people who are miles and miles and states away from Houston, or the people in Texas, and more specifically, the people in Houston? Who's going to know more how to fix the problem that occurred in last election? It's easy, right? It's Houston. Houston's going to know how to fix the problem. Texas is going to know how to fix the problem. That's one of the reasons, I believe, that the founding fathers left it to the states to decide how to come up with these laws, logistically speaking anyway, in the X, Y, and Zs as far as, you know, how people are going to be able to make their voice known. There's a reason to that. I think there's some beauty to that of not making a federalization of this election process. It would create more problems, if anything. And I say this as someone who's been a federal employee. When there's a problem in the system, it takes forever to fix it. Imagine if something happened in Texas and it was federalized and the issue occurred in Houston. You know how long it would take for that problem to be resolved? They may say a couple of weeks, but let me tell you something. If you've never worked for the government, two weeks government time means 10 years. So as someone who's worked in the federal section of my life, I don't really trust the federal government to take oversight at a broad spectrum, such as the electoral process. I think there's beauty to the founding fathers and letting the states handle it because like I said, who's going to know better how to fix the problem? The state, the county within the state, or the federal government? I think in some sense the John Lewis bill works better because it does put the federal government in that more of a reaction to something going wrong in terms of investigating. But when it does come into the terms of preclearance, there is just at some level a distrust from the federal government towards the states to handle their laws and voter registration registration with integrity. I think this is highlighted in the massive amount of laws that in state laws that immediately got changed after the Shelby v. Holder. In fact, Texas enacted new voting laws literally less than 24 hours after the Supreme Court decision. I guess the reason that we want the federal oversight has had to happen is that earnestly that there just needs to be some type of extra oversight from the citizens because their states aren't behaving in the way they should. And this is actually kind of the philosophy behind the 14th Amendment, the Bill of Rights, when it was originally written in, the, in our first, you know, the, when the Constitution was first ratified and we had the, t- you know, 10 items on the Bill of Rights. These prevented the federal government from doing these things to you. The state government could abridge any of those rights in any way they saw fit. State governments were not obliged to follow the Constitution. It was only what the federal government could not do to you. So in the 14th Amendment, one of the things of the way people will talk about it is they say, will say it nationalized the Bill of Rights. And so it basically meant that no state government agency can violate any clause of the Bill of Rights or the Constitution constitution, not just the federal government. And so the 14th Amendment established the legal precedent for the federal government to be like even forcing the Bill of Rights to be enforced on the states, in some sense, federalizing people's rights through the 14th Amendment because there were abuses of people's rights going on in in the states and the federal government took action through a constitutional amendment. So I think it's just one of those instances of where we like our state and local governments, but we also want to make sure there's a check on them as well. In this instance, in the way our government's structured, that end up that ends up being the federal government. I mean, I guess for me, I mean, we talked about the 14th Amendment and everything like that, but there's also a part of the Constitution where it outlines that it's within the state's right to write their own voting laws and everything like that. So I 
personally think if you're trying to federalize an election, for example, you have to at least go through the constitutional process of amending the constitution. And unfortunately, the way they're trying to go about it is just by a simple majority, which if you're trying to amend the constitution by itself, that's a much harder process. And there's a reason why our founding fathers made the process harder. And the reason why I think the founding fathers left the power to the states for the voting uh, legislation is because the states, uh, they know better what's best for their people, what's appropriate measure for them in particular in order for them to go out and vote and or election security in particular. So I definitely think and fall in line with its within the state's rights to pass these legislations that they feel as though should be protected for people to basically rebuild the trust of what happened from the 2020 election, because that's basically what the response is with these election integrity laws. It's just a response. Maybe as a direct response to what Ken said about, you know, the way they went about it, is that since obviously we're talking about bills that didn't pass and bills that, you know, just died on the floor, is that obviously I would have liked this to pass because I believe that federalization is oftentimes good. Good, especially when it comes to elections and like especially when it comes to like things like presidential elections i don't see any i mean i see reasons obviously i just don't necessarily agree with them but in the case of a procedure and like how they try to pass this uh, i'll just say that the constitution was made to be amended in my opinion and i feel like it, you know going through the normal channels is pretty much impossible in the political landscape right now. I, I don't really have an answer to like, should they have gone through the proper channels? Because I know that if they wanted to go through the proper channels, it would take them like 200 years to pass any. Like, I don't remember the last time anything passed by like a two thirds vote. Like that's, that, that sounds, and especially in a, such a controversial topic. And again, you're going to say that, I feel like people are going to say that this is as intended, but to me, it's such an important matter as like voting rights and trying to like, you know, preserve the integrity of our elections. I don't know. If I'm going to wait for 50 Republicans to agree with me or at least two thirds of them, that, then I think I'm just going to be very old by the time that happens. <laughs> I definitely think it's interesting to see how the red states in particular, the voting laws are passed as a response to the 2020 election. And now the Democrats proposed bills as a response to the election laws that are being passed in the red states right now. So I think that's pretty interesting to watch unfold. Marcelo read my mind. Uh, <laughs> it, it is as intended. So the way that I view it is, number one, the founding fathers were not fans of large sweeping federalized government. They had just fled because of that, and they valued individual liberties, which is why they pushed those checks and balances. It's also why we are a representative, rather we're a republic, rather than a true democracy, because the founding fathers knew that democracies crumbled after maybe a couple hundred years, but all, all the democracies up to that time had all crumbled, and so they wanted something that would be a little bit longer lasting. And so, you know, people view it as a weakness now that I can't get, you know, more than 50 people to pass something, and to me, that's exactly as it was intended, because we weren't designed to be bare majority rule where a simple majority can run over the will of the people that's, you know, if you can't get that two thirds filibuster proof majority, then it's not enough people that you get to just ram that through, which is now why the discussion has turned to how can we do away with the filibuster because they want to run it over. And to me, it is most alarming that they're trying to justify this and say, well, voting rights, it just justifies me doing what I want. Like you can always just justify doing what you want. And it's it's problematic to me that they're trying to work around, like Ken had mentioned, the due process, just because they can maybe find a justification for it. I, I just wish the due process wasn't so damn long, right? Like, I, I wish I wish some of these things, and obviously not about the same things, but you might agree with me on the process is that, you know, and especially as a progressive, I feel like I really want change enacted, not in like three, like, Senate terms, right? If we could get something done in like a legislative session, that would make me so happy. I understand. I'm going to say I understand why it takes so long. I just wish it wouldn't take so long. Because again, if I have to wait for people to agree with me, then I'm going to be sitting here a long time. It's definitely not ideal that Congress is not getting anything done lately. And I agree that Congress could definitely speed the process up. But at the same time, there are certain, uh, it's not really so much about the process itself, but the mindset. I remember I watched an interview with Tulsi Gabbard and how her first day in Congress, she was explained by the Democrats, by her leaders, if you will, her supervisors, that any idea that the Republicans come up with, they're to automatically reject it and not even bother to look at the merits of their idea. And the Republicans do it too. So it's not really so much about 
the process of how things are getting done as much as the mindset people are going in. It's about power right now. It's about power. And as, and if you have the power and you have a good idea, then it's about wanting that credit, right? If you have a great idea and you're the one that's in power, then it's going to look good upon you. So I definitely agree that it's bad that they can't get anything done, but I don't think it's the process itself that's the problem. It's more of the mindset their paradigm that's that we're letting these people we're voting these people into or we're voting people in that have that mindset i should say which should disturb anyone and really would again it kind of goes back to the whole local politics thing right like members of the house they represent small districts within these states pay attention to how your district member that's supposed to be representing you is voting are they voting based on the premise of who's in power or are they voting based on the merit of the idea that's really the main problem i think that's happening right now in congress Congress. There's a silver lining as well that it's a good thing in order to pass legitimate laws. Like you actually have to have like that two thirds vote. Now, I know there's been lots of scenarios where they did simple majority, especially in the Senate level, especially when it comes to confirmation of judges lately, because it's been so politicized and probably goes back to that little paradigm that's being allowed in Congress right now. But there is a beauty that if it forces the leaders anyway to actually truly persuade their own delegates in Congress to vote a certain way, at least in theory. So again, it's not a matter of the system as much as the people's paradigm that's in Congress right now that we're just continuously voting in. And a lot of times, I'm guaranteeing you the majority of them that vote these people in, they're just going, they're just voting along party lines. They're not really paying attention. They're like, oh, he's a Republican, I'm going to vote Democrat. Oh, he's a Democrat, I'm going to vote Republican. Not even bothering looking at the other merits of it. I've been guilty of this too, by the way. I'm not uh, free of sin by any means. It's only been like the last couple of years I've started to really pay attention to smaller local level politics, if you will. And I think I would encourage really anyone to just kind of put more emphasis on the local level anyway, and just focus on their own Congress members that represent their district. Make sure they're representing you. It's not the system, it's the people that we keep voting into. So this this shifts the idea slightly, but the federalization and the reason that it's alarming to me is you know, right now people might, especially the progressives, might support the enforcement of legislation they like. But if you federalize it, the Department of Justice largely answers to the president because the head of the Department of Justice is appointed by the president, which means that while you can say, you know, oh, it's one of the systems and levers and it's not actually political, they're political. We've seen federal institutions operationalized on behalf of the president. And do we want that? Like picture... If Trump had been reelected, would you want Trump overseeing the future elections? If you are a Republican, do you want Biden overseeing the elections? To me, it's at the state level, there's more control. It's more answerable to the people. Regardless of your party affiliation, typically you are grateful that nothing can be done when it's not something you want to be done. I think that that kind of tends to go both ways. I do think it walks this like interesting balance because, you know, when the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act were passed, you know, in 64 and 65, respectively, several states joined in coalition and, you know, sued to the Supreme Court over both the bills, kind of even questioning this idea of, of federalization of whether or not this was allowable that the federal government could have this oversight. Not necessarily that the government had too many requirements in the original, like, 65 bill of other than stop doing this, allow this, that, you know, one of the things that was, you know, heavily, you know, litigated over was, does the federal government have the authority to oversee what is going on? And I think that's reflected in, like, in a couple Supreme Court decisions that that outlawed poll taxes for federal elections. So what happened then is then you had a bunch of state and local elections. The rest of the states uh, complied, and it was only five states that kept state and local poll taxes in there. Um, now, come two years after that, the Supreme Court comes and rules basically on the idea of the 14th Amendment that the federal government had made this protection, that then if this protection wasn't being equally enforced across all you know member states of the United States, then the Equal Protections Clause of the 14th Amendment, the promise of the federal government that everyone will be litigated and legislated equally was not being upheld. And so they ruled in favor for the most part uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. It started getting less favorable as you got to the mid 70s. But for the most part, those early court cases backed up that if the federal government would pass a piece of legislation that the Supreme Court was willing to rule time and time again. And even when we consider the real defeat of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, it was not because the Supreme Court said the federal government does not have the purview. Um, in fact, a large part of uh, the John Lewis bill is almost word for word lifted from 
some of the justices' opinions about what was wrong. And what was wrong was the enactment clause. And that's because it targeted specific states instead of uh, instead of targeting people who were offending the you know, law and breaking federal statutes. And that's what the new one does. So it does help provide some of those solutions of like the constitutionality of, you know, voting rights in the past. But there has been time and time again of whether it was um, Andrew uh, Jackson expanding the right to vote to all white men that had to be litigated out because there was a lot of really wealthy business owners that sued his government for taking that action, saying the federal government has no say over this. So this federalization and control of the election has been time and time litigated throughout the Supreme Court, usually with the Supreme Court coming down on the side of the federal government saying, if this needs to be done, as long as we're doing it in a way that fairly applies to all of the states, then you know these are actions within the power and realms of the, the federal government. So it's it's interesting that, that and Josh, you know, that's, that's a representation of a lot of the reason behind this bill being federalized. This is where I differ. I want to harken back to what Ken said, which was that this is unconstitutional. Josh is arguing that it can be constitutional because it's not discriminatory against specific states. It goes for all. Ken was arguing earlier and pointed out that it would be unconstitutional because the Constitution only delegates specific powers to the federal government. The idea, the Tenth Amendment, that says that any powers not delegated to the federal government goes to the states meant that we outlined in the Constitution specific powers that the federal government can do outside of that. Anything the federal government does is unconstitutional. And Josh, I see the argument you're making that it can be considered more constitutional because you can't individually target people with a law because that would be unconstitutional. I still think that federalization, period, because it wasn't delegated them to regulate these elections, is going to be unconstitutional on the grounds that it is not in the founding document, the Constitution, that the federal government has the power to do that. So federalizing like that could be grounds for that being unconstitutional then. Um, I'm going to highly disagree with that because even while it wasn't in the original um, document with the 15th and 20th Amendment, we did add constitutional protections for the right to vote in the 15th on the basis of race and with the 20th on the basis of gender. So the right to vote and certain election protections have been enshrined into our Constitution. In fact, that's primary one of the reasons that the Voting Rights Act was upheld in um, 65 and 66 when it was re-challenged again in the courts was the Supreme Court was able to look back and say, no, here are part of our constitutions that say the federal government is obliged to make sure no one is discriminated against on the basis of race, ethnicity, and sex. Because those, you know, those had become part of our constitution. We amended our constitution and said this, you know, the right to vote and not not to be discriminated against for U.S. citizens is now an enshrined part of our constitution. We made those amendments. It is now constitutional. I don't see how it could be unconstitutional to enforce other parts of the constitution. It would be unconstitutional because if they're going to just say federal government gets to dictate, then that would have to be, like you mentioned, it would have to be a constitutional amendment. So what Ken was saying earlier that this would have to go through a constitutional amendment process to be considered constitutional if they don't do that, as in they were trying to get it by with just the majority of votes. In fact, now they're even talking about just killing the filibuster so they can get it by with a bare majority, 50 plus one. That's not constitutional enshrinement then because they're not passing it as a constitutional amendment. Um... I think there's a, a thought, though, of how our government works. That is, Congress writes the laws and the courts interpret the laws. Because oftentimes you'll get, you know, Congress will come through and write a law and it will be X, Y, and Z. And then the court, you know, will give nitty gritty rulings of like, this is how this needs to play out. So when they put into the Constitution, you know, no one can be discriminated, uh, you know, to the right to vote on the basis of their race or ethnicity. That then says that the federal government has to pass laws to make sure that happens, to to fulfill the obligations of the 15th and 20th Amendment, they have to pass these federalization laws or they're not actually doing what the constitutionality says. So when the Voting Rights Act gets challenged, then the federal government is interpreting it against primarily the 14th, 15th uh, Amendments and saying, do these laws uphold the integrity of the amendments presented here and the actions of the federal government? And time and time again, like again, up until the regional targeting from Section 4, the Supreme Court has always ruled in favor. And it's been a bipartisan signing coming in in 1965. Richard Nixon signed an extension. Gerald Ford signed an extension. Ronald Reagan signed the first of the 25-year extensions. And then in 2006, another 25-year extension of the Voting Rights Act was passed. So this has long kind of been a bipartisan agreement of since we have these constitutional amendments, Congress has the obligation to litigate around and make sure people's rights are protected and not in a passive way. And earnestly, we don't want our government like 
sitting around waiting for us to be infringed upon to take action. It would be better if they would prevent us from being infringed upon in the first place. I agree with you, Josh, as far as, you know, it is the federal government's responsibility to make sure the states are blind federal law and following the Constitution by itself. But to kind of make the point I was making earlier as far as this voting bill is a response to these red states passing election integrity laws. What rights are these states violating from your perception? Voter ID laws and like, so we're gonna, we'll shelve that to after uh, we get done with that because it's a whole thing. But come, a couple of the other things. One of the primary things is the closing of polling locations. And this has impact on a lot of different factors. If the lines are longer, that makes it harder for the elderly and infirm to vote. Not everyone has the physical constitution to stand in line to vote for, you know, five, six, seven hours. And we should not want our democracy to take five, six, seven hours to vote on. And since the removal of the Section 4B from the Voter Rights Act, there have been more than a thousand of polling places closed in primarily Black communities. And this also, you know, uh, target a lot of uh, Latino communities as well. And we even see, like, sometimes a county will be reduced down to a single polling location and people can sometimes have to drive 30, 40 minutes to their polling location to then wait hours in line to then find out that they've been purged off the voter rolls because that was one of the other protections that the Voting Rights Act saw was to make sure that voter roll purges have been done. Now, voter roll purges are important. Depending on how the state works, when you die, the Social Security Administration will contact the state so they can take you off the list because they know you're dead. Some states will let that build up and have like a yearly clear out process. However, there is a lot of different ways they have found to purge people off. And even the um, nonpartisan commission from the federal government, along with the Brennan Center for Justice, which specializes in election laws, saw from 2014 to 2016, there were 16 million people removed from the voter rolls. Most of those people had died, but that was a 33% increase over 2006 to 2008. And the Brennan Center of Justice estimated there was about 2 million legitimate voters who removed from the voter rolls for the 2016 election that weren't in the 2014 election. So you can imagine like this is a combo effect. And this is a point that the American Civil Liberties Union um, points out that if you've been voting in every past election, and then you show up to your voting place, and you wait five, six, seven hours in line for the polls, and then you get up to there and you find out that you've been purged off the rolls, and no one notified you, no one told you of this, no one sent you a letter saying, hey, you need to re-register. This just happened. No one contacted you. How likely are you to come back for the next election? So first and foremost, these laws that are being passed in these Republican states to tighten security is not going to hurt the minority population. It's not going to hurt me, especially these voter ID laws where you actually have to show an ID to vote. Name one person in minority that you've met that does not have an ID of some sort. I don't believe voting rights is at stake. What I believe, and at least the other half of the country believes is at stake, is election integrity. And to kind of make the point I was making earlier about letting the states handle it, and they know better than the federal government as far as how to fix their own problems, they have every right to go ahead and pass laws to rebuild that trust. Because that's what happened in the last election. Half the country basically lost trust in the process. This election was completely different. We have never seen an election, including a candidate that saw the results and said, bullshit, basically. We had never seen that before. That's a big deal. I don't view voting rights as the issue right now. I don't think voting rights is at stake. I think the integrity of our election is at stake. When you have states that have residents where their votes are being counted and they don't even live in that state anymore, but they're still being counted. And you have people who have passed away on the, not only on the voter rolls, but their votes have also been counted. How can you not take some steps to reassure the people the process still works? This is not an attack on the minority people at all. Again, I speak as one. It's not an attack on us at all. I want these laws to be passed. I want people to show an ID when they vote. I want people who are registered to vote actually be the ones whose votes are being counted, not unregistered voters. I don't want illegal immigrants also being counted in our electoral process. If you really cared about the election process and electoral process and you actually want to participate in it, then take the steps. And this is the difference right now in how far attached the left has gotten from the idea of personal responsibility. You have a personal responsibility. If you wanna do something, then you have the power to get your butt off the couch and go do whatever it is you need to do so you can take part in this electoral process. Again, name one person that you know who is black, Hispanic, Asian, anyone of color who does not have an ID. Which by the way, it's not racist apparently, 
when you have to show an ID when you go to a liquor store, for example, or when you go to the airport. If it's not racist then, then why is it racist and disproportionately affecting those in the minority community, the color population, if you will? You know, we're at a disadvantage. How are we at disadvantage when it comes to voting, but not anything else? Voting rights is not at stake. The integrity of our election process is at stake. So I think it's a matter of accessibility, especially in terms of polling places. And like a lot of like early voting, um, very specifically targeted some nasty things like in the Georgia election bill that came up to try to close Sunday voting. Well, that's enshrined in a tradition in the black community, especially in Georgia called souls to the polls, where during early voting periods, they would go, they would meet and gather or have a normal church service. And then the churches would go to the polls and vote as a community action. That's why they called it souls to the polls. Georgia tried to pass a law that would eliminate early voting on Sundays during early voting periods. And so why target something that, you know, is explicitly taking people to the polls and to vote? And such a law like that wouldn't have been possible with Section 4B in place or the John Lewis Act because it would have been subject to the DOJ review. So my concern is there's a lot of legitimate voters to order of magnitude more legitimate voters who get taken off and make it harder to vote um, to try to prevent what is normatively a few hundred to a few thousand uh, miscast or wrongly cast ballots, which most of the time are just paperwork clerical errors, with usually sometimes in the low hundreds of actual voter fraud occurring per year from all evidence of state and local government, the Department of Justice and the FBI can find that there just isn't enough widespread fraud to justify removing hundreds of thousands of Americans from the polls, in my opinion. So I was just going to say, I think it context is everything, right? So like the, hun- like the thousand uh, polls that happens to that have been closed, predominantly black neighborhoods and everything like that. Do you know like the actual justification of why those polls were closed? I think it's important for us when we see something like that to not automatically assume it's a racial thing. Because if we do that, then we we water down the term uh, racism, essentially. Between 2013 and 2016, there was about 1,350 um, polling locations closed, and a 1,000 of those were in Black neighborhoods. 200 of them were in uh, Latino neighborhoods, and less than, I think, 50 were in white neighborhoods. So even if they were making budget cuts, they selected where those budget cuts would be made, and what seems to be a fairly clear pattern. Um, I guess the question, again, I go back to, did you actually look into their reasoning why they had those budget cuts and why they closed those polls, instead of just assuming it was a racial thing? and there was racial bias. I mean, if you have to close polling locations, maybe close one in every kind of district. And because if you have to consolidate poll workers or you have lost, you know, funding and you don't have as many election workers, this question still remains of if they had to be closed, why those communities and why not more of an equal distributed closing that tried to keep in mind drive times and access and wait times polls had seen before to try to flow better. Sure, we can say an action had to be made or maybe polls had to be closed, but why those polls and why in such misshapen percentages and demographics and areas targeted? To Ken's point, one of the other data points you would have to look at is, and maybe you know the answer to this, maybe you don't, but you would have to know what is the population surrounding those polls? Because if they happen to close polls that were lower populations and then allow those people to go to larger populations, that is one thing that would make it to where, you know, you might want to hold off on the racial bias judgment at that point. And I do want to quickly point out with the Georgia law. It, since they did actually close the polling on Sunday and everything, that they, they did actually extend early day voting as well, to put in context. So they may have closed the pollings for Sunday in particular, but they also extended uh, the amount of days you can vote early as well. So that actually gives them more time to put in the cows in the vote and just kind of having that perception and context also helps to kind of really destroy this narrative that these voter ID, not just voter ID laws, but just election integrity laws are just racially charged and biased towards Latino and the black community in general. I think you have to be very careful with what you say surrounding that because words matter. And if you start claiming everything to be racist, the term racist loses its value. It loses its weight. And so I don't think personally there's anything wrong for asking someone to show an ID, for example, and someone to person of color myself, I personally have no issue. (laughs) 
with having to show an ID somewhere. I mean, we have to show ID when we go to the airport. We have to show an ID when we buy alcohol, cigarettes even, or if you're trying to get CBD products for crying out loud. So it's kind of interesting to see how none of those are considered racist, but for some reason, something like showing ID to vote, that's racially charged. But that's what I'm trying to connect the dots from right here sometimes. I don't I don't think we're calling everything racist. I think we're calling it racist. That's such a high amount of polling places in black and Latino neighborhoods are being closed. Well, obviously, they're not going to, like in their recent justification, like in the paper where they close the polling location, they're not going to be like, yes, we're racist. We close this place because we're racist. That's never going to happen. They're always going to find another reason. I think the statistical likelihood of these places being closed, specifically in these neighborhoods, and yeah, they're going to put, they might put, you know, a lower population. Too many people vote in mail, so that's why we're closing. There's not enough people use it. At the same time, you know, black and Latino neighborhoods are more likely to live in urban, in, in, in urban areas. So again, you're never going to go into the archives and like dig deep into whoever filed this closure and then find the gem that says, yes, we're racist. We close this place because we're racist. It's just a matter of analyzing. I don't know. To me, it kind of seems a little insulting to to insinuate uh, people of color are incapable of meeting these requirements to vote. If they want to go out and vote, if you care enough to vote, you'll find a way to vote. And to suggest that somehow this puts us at a disadvantage to me by itself, intentional or not, is kind of racist, too. I don't think you should care that much to vote. I think <laughs> I don't I don't think putting like a threshold like, you know, you should be willing to travel 20 minutes in the snow to be able to vote. I think everyone should be able to vote within a reasonable amount of like space. Again, I don't know if it's like a matter of effort. And if you didn't put enough effort, then you didn't, you know, deserve to vote. I think it's, you know, if I could vote with my phone, I would do it again. Now me, I cannot vote. But I think it should be easy enough to, so that people shouldn't feel burdened or feel like they have to prove something to go and vote. All right, well, we're going to have to come back with our hot takes. Final thoughts. We will be right back with those. You're listening to the Central Hub for Political Discourse, self-proclaimed by us. <laughs> and can we don't actually go anywhere. Uh, so I'll kick it over to Josh. Uh, probably try to keep it under two minutes so we stay within time. So one of the more complicated aspects of when we're litigating out voter rights, and I think Ken pointed out of like the struggle of identifying of how do we know when something is a discriminatory intentional action and when it's not. And in legal doctrine, this is what we call the, the what is called the separation of Bull Connor racism versus kind of this passer racism. Bull Connor is named after some Alabama politician who's not worth remembering any more than that. So this basically means if you don't explicitly say, hey, go do something racist, it's going to be really hard to prove in court. This was like uh, litigated out, especially in a case that happened in California, where a county that had a population of about under 10% of black population, somehow or another, the police ended up pulling for 60% of all traffic stops from that 9% or so black population in the town. They came to the Supreme Court and said, hey, this is a clear pattern of discrimination and racial profiling on the basis of the police. Well, the Supreme Court said, you know, the police chief never said, hey, go out and target these people explicitly. So we're not sure, you know, and we're not willing to say that this pattern indicates an explicit piece of racism. In 2016, the North Carolina tried to change their election laws, and they actually messed up and committed an act of bull Connor racism, and so the Supreme Court quickly struck it down. And that was when they were evaluating new voter ID laws. They specifically requested from their State Department the racial demographics of who held what IDs. And in the drafts of the legislation that they were working through the House, they specifically eliminated the IDs that qualified as being useful and being valid forms of identification towards the black community. So the more of the black community that owned a particular type of an ID, the more likely it was to be not included as a valid form of voter ID law. And so they made that act of bull Connor racism. And so the law got struck down quickly after it was passed. And so I do think that's kind of the difference. And that's something we have to be careful for is that because of the legal game surrounding voting rights and civil rights, there has been this way uh, of trying to do and get racist results without saying racist things, because that's when the Supreme Court can actually get you. But if you can hide it away and make it seem unintentional, you have better protection from the court system. And I think that's just something as a society we need to deal with. And that's why these statistical observations and looking to see what the impacts of policy legislations, even if they're intended good, the pathway to hell is paid with good intentions. So we want to make sure of the effects and impacts of policies are good and 
and not just what we want them to do in the first place. So my first hot take is going to be that in order to have massive sweeping federalized reform, you need to demonstrate that there's a need for that. I don't think that there's been that demonstration. I think that when people talk about the need to pass these types of voter reforms, they rely very, very heavily on historic racism, Bull Connor racism, which were terrible things, but they can't pinpoint things that happen today other than potential dog whistling or like the more covert forms of racism. And I think that along with that, it's important to remember that it's equally convenient to be able to say that it's dog whistling at racism because the people who are claiming that don't have the same burden of proof. You know, you can point out that there's a discrepancy in where polls were shut down, but we don't actually dissect the data. They look at the aggregate result, the overall result, and they say, boom, clearly that's an instance of racism, federal intervention. My main point on this first hot tank here is that you can't just give over the control to the federalization portion of the government. Like Josh said, road to hell is paid with good intentions. You might have the good intentions to protect specific rights here, but you're also undercutting other ones. And I think that demonstrating the need for that intervention is very important. My last hot take is that there's a lot of conflation between the right to vote with easy voting. It was mentioned a little bit today, but the fact that people have to stand in line, the fact that people might have to travel a little bit further to vote is not evidence of racism. It's not evidence of voter suppression. It just means that that's the way that it is. And I think that we need to be very careful, again, as we're trying to demonstrate evidence to then turn over to the federal government, the federalization of running elections, which then requires the states to be at the mercy of a federally controlled entity. I think you need a little bit more concrete evidence than that. I have two real quick hot takes. The first one is the one I already mentioned uh, last episode, and is that I just wish that they would pass these things, or I guess attempt to pass these things one by one, so that people could, you know, again, get them to the floor, get them to a vote, and have these people say no to each of these things individually, so that I would have to stop hearing the argument of like, well, it's, you know, the bill's too big, so that's why it failed. You know, I had one thing that I didn't like, so sorry, I couldn't support your other 49 things. I think that would solve a lot of things. The second one is, again, I already said this, but having to keep waiting for this change to pass simply because, you know, like 50 people, I guess 52 people in the Senate don't really agree with my position is infuriating, is really frustrating. And we're in this, you know, ping pong table. Like in this case, like just like we were in 2016 to 2020, where it was the Democrats job to sort of like obstruct and take Trump to court and everything that he did. Now it's like Republicans are super proud of being like obstructionists and trying to like block everything that the Democratic Party is trying to do. I just, I hate it, obviously. And I also think that it's very much telling of the political landscape that we live in today. It's just very, it's going to be very annoying and the midterms are coming up. So it's going to, it's only going to become more annoying where it's like, you know, your measure of your worth to the party is of how much you're going to disagree with the other side, regardless of, you know, whether or not you stand on the issues or not. I don't like cinema and I don't like Joe Manchin. And with that, I'll end. <laughs> All right. So I guess my hot take would be first and foremost, I am pretty thankful that the passage of this new federal voting law failed, uh, first and foremost, I think, if it would have passed, would have put us a step closer to a third world country status, personally. So there's that. But I also want to say it is very important for us to kind of stop using race as a shield for anything bad or anything that we disagree with. Because if we start using race for everything that we disagree with, kind of what I was saying earlier, it just really waters down really the severity of that term racism in general. So when it comes to like these election integrity laws and everything like that, which I think is completely justified to, especially from what happened in 2020 election, I don't really agree with the media's assessment. There's no uh, evidence of widespread voter fraud necessarily. And I think there's, as a matter of fact, there's been forensic uh, election audits that have come out, for example, in Texas after they passed their voter laws and everything like that, they had to take out over 200,000 registered dead people off their voter rolls. And that's quite a significant number or a state like Wisconsin, where the election audit came out to be where it wasn't a 93% turnout, but instead a 74% turnout. So these election integrity laws that are passing in these, you know, strong Republican strongholds anyway, is completely justified. And I think it's a little irresponsible to assume that it's because of race that these laws are being passed. But it's also a reflection that we're just living in two different realities as far as what's going on in America. And I think uh, we should just give each other a little bit of slack and just kind of remember that at the end of the day, we're still human beings. And we're just trying to search for truth that we, all of us, uh, especially people on this show, we actually do care about what's going on in this country. And uh, we just have a different idea of how to resolve some of these issues. So that's my hot take. All right. I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad we finally figured out your... <laughs> 
Your whole computer issues. Uh, we will be back here Saturday at noon central. We'll get around to being live eventually, but <laughs> uh, we'll uh, we'll have you back again sometime, Ken. Thanks for joining us. Uh, goodbye All for right. now. All right, have a good one.